0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel 3, 8 through 15. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, harp, bagpipe, and other kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Medigo, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Seth. Uh, well, good morning, uh, Christ Community. My name is Reed, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at the Olathe campus. It's good to be with you all uh, this morning. And um, yeah, as you, as you heard the text read, we're, we're in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament uh, going through the series and looking at what it means to live life without control Uh, It's something that we all want and long for, but if we're honest, we realize we don't have it. Uh, And and this morning, we come to a story that is rather familiar if you've grown up in the church, and even if you haven't, uh, perhaps you've heard it in some way. Uh, But but before we jump into it and really explore what what God is doing in this story, I want to share a story from my life when I was in uh, eighth grade. um, I I wasn't what you would call a good kid um, in in eighth grade, in middle school, high school. I had a pretty rebellious season. um, And during this time, I remember going to my first party. I was in eighth grade. And by party, I don't mean like streamers and cupcakes, okay, just to be clear. And and so I I sneak out of my house with my friends. uh, So my mom doesn't know where I am. And we go to this house. I don't know who these people are, but my friends invited me to this party. And Uh, we engage in some things that are not really uh, things I'm proud of. I regret greatly, but the reason I'm telling the story is because it was in this time that I recall, it was one of the first times I remember praying to God really like ever, like in, in a sense of, of sincerity and um, honesty. And, and it's rather sad because you'll hear kind of the prayer that I prayed. And I, I didn't want to get caught. I didn't want to get busted. I was, I was feeling guilty and conviction of some kind. I just didn't want to be grounded. And so I went to the corner of this house and began praying to whatever God I, I believed in at that time. And I remember just saying, God, if you get me out of this, if you get me home, if I, if I avoid getting in trouble, I promise I will go to church for two months. That was that was my offer on the table. And this, and this offer goes off the table at midnight, God, just so you know. And, and, and this is what I'm, I'm offering to God. And so like, I didn't have really any intention of going to church. I mean, I, I went with my mom really reluctantly, but I was like, you know, I'll, I'll even sit in the, in the service and I'll pay attention. I'll go bring a pencil and I'll take notes, you know? And so this is my negotiation prayer to God. And, and I, did, I made it home. I didn't get in trouble. My mom never found it. I told her later, uh, you know, after the statute of limitations of, had passed of being grounded. But, but the reason I shared this story is because My my understanding of God at that time was essentially that God has things that I want, and I think God, I have things that God wants, and that my approach to God in prayer in this kind of negotiation contract language places me on the same level as God, essentially saying that I have bargaining power, I have something you want, God, and so if you do this for me, I'll do this for you, and, and we can kind of go about our lives." And and this is problematic for a number of reasons, one of which being that, yeah, it, it places us on the same level as God. But the second is that it kind of creates this conditional belief about God, that God is only good or God is only necessary or even God is only God if and when he comes through for me when I need him. If and only if he meets my needs, my wants, desires, and demands. And if he doesn't, well, he's not really good And perhaps he's not even really God. And when we view God in this way, we are not only deluding ourselves about who God is, but we are deluding ourselves about who we are. And we have failed to see reality through the lens through which God sees reality, which is the most important lens to see reality. And, and the reason I'm sharing this is because we, we tend to think, or I, I guess I should speak for myself, I used to think that mature Christianity, a mature Christian, to have really strong faith was to believe that God will do this thing for you if you believe strong enough, that if you do these things and have this kind of faith, God will come through. And what I actually believe now is that it, it's actually not that way. That, that the mature faith, the, the, the mature posture of prayer is not this idea of God will come through, but that God can come through. And that ultimately, the, fa- the reason that he does come through is ultimately up to him. We tend to think that, that if I believe this, God will come through. And if he doesn't, well, then he's not God or he's not good. But the reality is that the true mature response to God is one that says not not that God will, but that God can, and it is entirely up to him as he sees fit. To to, to put it another way, I, I think that what we need to understand as we approach God in faith, it means that even if God doesn't come through in the way in which we think he ought to, he is still God, he is still good, and he is still in control. And, and I think this is exactly the story and the, 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 the response that we see in, in the lives of these two men, and, or these three men, in the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But if you remember, those were their pagan names. Those were the names given to them by Nebuchadnezzar as a way to say, you're no longer who you once were. You now embrace this pagan identity. But for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to call them the guys, okay? I think that'll be easier as we're going through Daniel 3. But I believe what we're going to see in this story is this this kind of contrast to a faith that doesn't just say God will, but God can. And it is entirely up to him to do as he pleases. And I believe this kind of faith, what we're going to call even if faith, it's a kind of faith that I think the church uniquely needs to hear and understand and embrace today. Especially as the church continues to find herself living increasingly in a world that is in some ways Unsympathetic to Christianity and, and in some ways very hostile to Christianity. And I believe we have to see what it means to live with this, even if faith. And as I mentioned, this story may be familiar to you, and so you're like, yeah, I've heard this one. I've, I've seen it in Sunday school. You know, we had the whole felt board. I got this one. But I, I want to make sure that we don't tune out in this very familiar story so that we don't miss what I believe the, tr- the church needs to hear today. So before we jump in, I want to pray for us as we continue on in our story. So let's let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause just to to recognize that you are God, that we are not, and that you are the the revealer of all truth. And so Lord, we ask for your spirit to to give us insight into your word. Lord, may, may anything that I say that is untrue be forgotten, and may anything I say that is true in accordance with your word be remembered, be embraced, and lived out. So Lord may this time be honoring to you and and encouraging and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So what I'd like to do this morning is is just kind of walk us back through the story. Again, it's a familiar story, but, but there might be some things we miss. And so the first act of our story, act one, is act one is the golden selfie the golden selfie. So here's here's how the story goes. Nebuchadnezzar, so he's the greatest king, the greatest ruler of the known world. Everything that exists is his, basically. And he has constructed this golden image that says to be 60 cubits tall, which is about 90 feet tall, six cubits wide, nine feet wide. And it's on this plane so that it can be seen for miles. So everybody can see this. That's the point. No one can avoid this thing. And he's constructed this image. We don't know for sure if it's it's a replica of himself, but, but But scholars believe that it's probably some kind of representation of of King Nebi, which we'll call throughout the story sometimes. Uh, But we don't know, again, it's not, we don't know if it's a statue, but there's some kind of representation. It's either it looks like him or it represents his political reign and rule over the world at this day. And so here's the story as it goes, not only has he so humbly created this idol of himself that probably represents him, but he has added this command that at the sound of all of these horrendous instruments, including a bagpipe, uh, that you are to bow down to this golden image. And, and there's no option here. It's not a suggestion it's not like, hey, if you have time, could you pencil in this pagan ritual? No, it's like, no, if you don't do this, you become Babylonian barbecue. That's the picture here. If you don't bow down to this golden image, you are sent into the fiery furnace to wait your fate. And so this is the story. And, and then not only that, not only has he constructed this image that probably represents himself, not only is he demanding that people bow to it, but the people he invites. He lists off all these people, the magistrates, the governors and princes and all these people. They come, these are people representing nations and people groups that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered. And so basically what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar is that bully who beat you up in school, who took your lunch money and then demanded that you tell him, tell me I'm great. Like that's essentially what he's doing here. Like he's conquered these nations and now he demands that they come and bow before this image that represents him in some way. Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice guy. Essentially, that's the point of act one. But this leads into act two, which is the tattletales. And what we see is that the Chaldeans, if you remember them from chapter two, they were the magicians, the enchanters who Nebuchadnezzar asked to tell me, tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And if you recall, they weren't able to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar was very upset with them, and he demanded that they be killed. They have their appendages ripped off, and that's not a really nice thing. You can't open ketchup bottles after that, and so there's a lot of problems to come. And so he tells them that they are to die. But if you remember, Daniel comes in and is able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he kind of shows up the Chaldeans. And so my guess is the Chaldeans have been pretty upset since this point. We don't know how much time has passed uh, but we do know that the, the Chaldeans are more than likely annoyed with Daniel and his friends, and they're looking for a chance to get back. And what we see is that I think they seize this opportunity. Because as it, in verse 8, it says, therefore at that time, so, so very quickly, like Nebuchadnezzar has made this command, bow to this golden image. And then it says, therefore at that time, the Chaldeans bring to Nebuchadnezzar, like, hey, we know some guys who aren't going to do this. We know that they have not bowed to this golden image. And they're trying to seek revenge against Daniel and his buddies, And if you notice, the way in which they they bring this this, uh, accusation to Nebuchadnezzar is they make it look like the guys and their refusal to bow down, that it's actually uh, an act of disrespect and rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar himself. If you notice in verse 12, it says, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so really, the Chaldeans, they, they understand King Nebuchadnezzar's love language, which is narcissism and pride. And, and, and he responds, like, oh, this, this cannot be. I will not allow someone to disrespect me by refusing to bow to the idol that I have set up. And so then this leads to Act 3. Nebi is not happy. He's not happy. And so how does he react to this situation? Does he, does he invite the guys over for lemonade? Like, hey, tell me, I just want to understand better. Why aren't you doing this? No, he's, he's furious. It says he, he responds in this violent rage. It's the same reaction in chapter two when the Chaldeans couldn't interpret the dream. And so this guy is furious, he's outraged, and he demands that these guys come to him. Now, the one thing that's unique is that he doesn't kill them right away. He, does, he doesn't demand that they be killed he actually does invite them to hear them out, so to speak. So there's some level of respect that Nebuchadnezzar has for these three guys that he didn't have for the Chaldeans in chapter two. And so he listens, he kind of understands, tries to see what they're going through. But if you pay attention, he doesn't actually even give them a chance to defend themselves. He's like, is this so? Have you actually done this? And then before he even gives them a chance to respond, he just gives them this ultimatum that we see in verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's interesting that he says this. Who who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Like, gee, I don't know. Maybe the same God that that Daniel relied upon to interpret your dream last week or or however long ago it was. Like, he's completely forgotten that he has witnessed the miracles of the God of Israel. And he's like, who is the God that's going to deliver you? So clearly, Nebuchadnezzar has very, a very low view of God and a very high view of himself. Who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Do you realize who I am? I'm the king of everything you can possibly see. And so then this leads to act four, where the guys don't budge. How do they respond? I mean, they are standing before the, the greatest power in the known world who is threatening them with imminent death. And what is their response? They don't budge. They don't even feel as though they need to give him an answer, but they do. Because they want to make clear who it is that they trust, the reason that they are confident, why they refuse to bow to this false god. And the boys respond, the guys respond in this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter if this be so, like, like, like they're even like doubting the fact that he'll follow through. Even if this be so, if this command of sending us to become Babylonian barbecue is real, like even if this happens, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I mean, do they, do they realize who they're speaking to? Do they realize who this guy, I mean, this is Mr. Furious. This is, this is the guy whose favorite emotion is anger and rage. This is the guy whose favorite form of torture is ripping your arms off. And this is the guy that they're saying to, like, you can't do anything to us. We, we, we will not bow down regardless of what you say, regardless of what you threaten us with. They remain confident and seemingly calm and cool. And the question for us is why? What on earth compels them, equips them, emboldens them to stand with conviction against the greatest known power in the world who is standing right before them? Although they recognize how great the king is that is standing before them who who seemingly holds their lives in his hand, the reason they're able to with such confidence say we will not bow down is because they know that their their lives are ultimately in the hands of a greater king. Yes, they recognize that Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful king, but they trust that their lives are in the hands of an even greater king. And although they they see and probably even feel the flames of the furnace, which is probably within eyesight of where they are, because everything's happening really quickly, it's immediately happening, they're immediately sent to the furnace. I mean, even though they see the furnace, feel the flames, what they see and feel with a greater sense of clarity is the presence of God. And so yes, they know the king that is before them who threatens them. They know and see the furnace that is before them that awaits them. And yet they still refuse to bow down. And the thing we must not miss is that we have to see the the kind of faith that these three men have in their God. And if you remember, I said that there's a difference between God will faith and and God can faith. And what's interesting is that they actually say, our God will deliver us. So wait a minute, don't, don't they have the kind of a skewed view? To, aren't they? Aren't they overly confident? Aren't they assuming or presuming upon God to act in a way that they want? But as you'll notice, these three men have what what would we call even if faith. As you continue to read, I want to read verse seventeen and eighteen again. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver. So He is able. As we sang this morning, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. So there's this confidence that he will out of your hand, O King. And then the three very important words we should not miss, but if not, our God will deliver us, but if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think you will struggle to find a more powerful image and story of faith in the midst of adversity and difficulty than in the story of these three men and their even-if faith. I mean, they are confident that God will deliver them, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't come through in the way in which we think he should, we will still not bow down. Why? Because we trust that our God, although we might think we know what's best for us, we trust that he ultimately knows what's best for us. You see, their trust is not just in the infinite power of God to deliver but their trust is in the infinite wisdom of God that he knows what is best for them regardless of the outcome. That's the picture here. It's not just, I believe, I believe, I believe, and so God will. It's that I believe, I believe, and I trust that whatever comes, God is in control and he knows what he is doing. Uh, in, in his book, The Gospel According to Daniel, which is a, a book I'd encourage you to pick up to, to read along during the, the Daniel series, uh, but Brian Chapel, in, in, in describing and commenting on this passage, he says this. Scripture directs us to do God's will and then to trust him to take care of the outcome. This is precisely what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They did not pretend to know what would happen to them. They had no desire to be burned alive and no doubt prayed for deliverance. Still, they recognized their chief duty was obedience, not figuring out what God would do next. This is the picture of even if faith. That even though I, I have an idea of how I want things to, to play out, I have an idea of what my life should look like, I have an idea of how this relationship should go and, and develop, I trust that God knows better than I do. And even if he doesn't come through in the way in which I desire, he is still good, he is still God, and he is still in control. And so we've seen this picture. So in these three men, we've, we, we see this even-if faith. But the question is, so how how do the dots of this even-if faith in Babylon connect to to the life that we live now in 2016 in this Western world? How do we connect the dots here? And and that's really what I want to do for the rest of our time is is how do we see this even-if faith lived out, played out in our contemporary world? And I I just want to highlight a few things as we kind of go back through the story. Is that what we need to see is that that we need even-if faith even if everyone is doing what we, what we would believe to be wrong, even, even if being faithful to God is unpopular, even if being faithful to God is unsafe, even if faith says, I will be faithful regardless of the outcome, regardless of what everyone else is doing. If you remember, yeah, earlier in the story, the golden image is, is, is created and constructed and everyone is expected to bow down to it. And, and, we, and we may read this and think, okay, how, how on earth do you connect the dots between this, this antiquated pagan ritual of bowing to, a, to an idol? Like, how does that connect to our dots? I mean, like, we don't do that anymore in our day, you know? Like, we don't bow down to golden images. That's ridiculous. Like, who does that? Like, we don't do that. <laughs> or maybe we still do, I'm not sure. Um, no, just kidding. If you like the Oscars, that's, that's fine, I guess. Uh, no, but the point is, I, I say this in jest, but, but in all seriousness, we do. I mean, even though the practices may look different, We still bow to false gods today. We still offer sacrifices to these gods in hopes that they will meet our demands and come through for us. We still worship at altars. They may look different, but the reality is the condition of our heart is the same. As John Calvin once said, the the human heart is an idol factory. We are prone to worshiping false gods throughout our lives. And we may look at at these kind of pagan cultures and say how barbaric they were for for offering up child sacrifices for their gods. I mean, we've, we've progressed past that, haven't we? But think about how many children in our world are sacrificed to the gods of careers and jobs at the altars of our offices. Think about how many families have been just ripped apart Because we are going to a wrong God, demanding sacrifices of us that we cannot fully make, thinking that they will bring about promises that will not happen. We offer sacrifices to gods at altars all the time. Think of of how many children literally have been sacrificed to the gods of sexual freedom at at the altar of the abortion clinic. Think of of how how much of our neighborly love has been sacrificed to the gods of apathy and comfort and fear at the altars of of indifference or hatred. Think about about how we have sacrificed neighborly love and we've refused to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've refused to love and welcome the immigrant, the refugee, the alien, the foreigner. We have sacrificed this for a false god. Think of of the way in which we have sacrificed the joy in God, the unspeakable joy in God for gods of of entertainment and materialism at the altars of, of Netflix and Ikea and fantasy football and anthropology. Like, Think of all of these false gods that we so regularly and readily bow to, thinking that they will tell us who we are and grant us the longing of our hearts. Think of the ways in which we bow to these gods Sure, it looks different. The practices may be different, but we all bow to gods. And what we need today is an even-if faith that says that even if everyone is bowing down to these gods, I will not. Even if I think that, that, that by doing so, it will make me acceptable by my peers, by my friends, by my classmates, by my coworkers, by my community. We say we will not bow down because these aren't gods at all. And they overpromise and underdeliver and leave us hollow and empty, just like the idol that they all bowed to in the plains. Each of us needs to honestly wrestle with that. What, what are the idols that we bow to? What are the gods that we turn to? What are the altars that we come to and worship at? What are the sacrifices we make thinking that this will deliver me? This will provide what I need? Are we losing our souls in order to gain what, what actually we will? We will inevitably lose we need even a faith even when everyone else is doing the opposite but we also need even a faith even if we're seen as strange for doing so just just as the issue of idolatry still plagues us today during the reign of king nebuchadnezzar what we saw is that there's also this this one god that kind of stood above the rest i mean he says you must serve all these gods but also you must bow down to this one uniquely it's set apart And so in this kind of pluralistic society that Nebuchadnezzar is in, there's all these gods, worship all these gods, embrace them, but there's one you must bow down to. And I think it's really interesting that I think what this story is pointing to is that we find that the people of God are under the pressure both in that time and now, to bow down to one God over others. Even though we live in a a religiously pluralistic society where, hey, your belief is as equally valid as mine, that all paths lead to God, that, that no one has the truth, that we're all kind of going in the same place regardless of what you believe. I believe this is the one golden idol that everyone is expected to bow down to without question. And what's interesting about it is that when you look at the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it's it's this pluralistic society, multiple gods, believe whatever you want. Remember, the the fury of Nebuchadnezzar is not rooted in the fact that these guys refuse, that these guys worship their God. The problem is that they don't worship the God that he wants them to worship. And, And I think this connects to our day in a lot of ways. Much like the golden image itself there is this veneer of tolerance of like, hey, like, there's a lot of gods and choose your god. It's kind of a buffet. Worship all these gods. But we actually find that behind it is this authoritative, exclusive claim that is actually self-defeating. It's okay to believe in God, but but you have to believe and worship this God. And this does. It sounds a lot like our day today where people are, are saying that in order to be progressive, in order to be seen as with it culturally, We must be inclusivists in in our approach to God and truth. It's fine to worship Jesus, but but you can't claim that Jesus is the one that everyone must worship. That it's fine if you have this belief, but, but you have to embrace this idea that all paths lead to God in some way. In other words, the golden idol that everyone must bow down to today is the belief that no one can be expected to bow down to one God alone. And notice the irony there. No, everyone, I mean, everyone's God is equally valid, but, but you, you must bow down to this idol that says all gods are equal. The idea that all religions and worldviews are equally valid, it's, I mean, it's just, it's so assumed in our world and championed that if you, if you refute it, you're seen as intellectually arrogant or culturally narrow-minded to say that your way, that your God is the way or the God is completely closed-minded. And because of the pervasiveness of this, this kind of view in our world, Christians continue to be seen as out of touch at best or, or actually dangerous and harmful to our culture at worst. But what's interesting is that that claim, that golden idol of religious pluralism is itself this exclusive claim to, 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 say, to say that, that no, all paths lead to God, you don't have the truth, all of them lead to God. Don't you understand that to say that, you must assume an infinite knowledge of all paths? To say that all paths lead to God, you're assuming a vantage point that you cannot assume. This is what Tim Keller, he says so well in his book Reason for God. He says, skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religion's view of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be as well. And I think this is the Babylon that that the church finds herself in. It would be so easy just to give in, just to say, all right, fine, we will reserve our beliefs, our convictions to the sphere of of private opinion, and that it has no bearing or relevance in our world, but even if faith tells us the opposite, that regardless of of what the world might be saying to us, regardless of, of how we might be seen for being faithful to God, we must trust that God knows what he's doing, and that regardless of how things might shake out in the end, God is still God, God is still good, and God is still in control. So we need even if faith, even if everyone is bowing to the false idols of our day, we need even if faith, even if we're seen for strange in doing so. But perhaps even more importantly that, we need even if faith, even if God doesn't come through in the way in which we think he should. And this is probably one of the more difficult ones to understand and embrace. It's not enough to just say God will do this. We have to be willing and able to say God can do this and he will accomplish all that he desires. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. The difference between the two, the difference between God will faith and even if faith is the belief that I don't necessarily know what's best for me and I don't necessarily even desire what's best for me, but God does. And I entrust the outcome to him. It's essentially saying that I trust that God in his infinite wisdom knows what's best for me. And his infinite love desires what's best for me. And his infinite power is capable of accomplishing what's best for me. And we entrust our lives to him. Just a story, an example from my life. So Some of you may know this, but our three girls, uh, they were all born with hip dysplasia. Uh, which not, it's not a terrible thing. You know, if you've heard of it, it's probably like, it's most common in dogs. Like, yeah, we had a cocker spaniel that had that. Well, we have three daughters that had it. And so uh, basically the, the ball of your femur doesn't fit in your hip socket and, and it has to be corrected. And, and I realize, I don't, I'm not trying to get pity here. I realize that many people have experienced far worse than what we've gone through. Um, but each, each of our girls had it. And it was frustrating and difficult. We couldn't take this harness off. They're like, I mean, every bodily fluid you can think of is on this thing. It's disgusting. There's like, I love you kind of, but you smell. And it was a terrible, frustrating situation. And so when our son Edmund was born, uh, we were just, okay, well, you know, we're probably going to go four for four. We're not sure. But but all the doctors were telling us, hey, I don't think he has it. He's passed all the preliminary tests, but let's do an ultrasound to be safe. And so I remember as we were preparing for that appointment, we were praying and, and we were kind of hopeful and we're like, Lord, we just... We thank you that all signs are pointing to this, but, but I remember in that prayer, literally saying the words, but even if, even if he has it, Lord, just, just help us, prepare us for that time, regardless of what comes. And, and, and little did I know that, that that's what would actually happen. Edmund has hip dysplasia, and, and it's not a big deal. Again, it's not like this, this terrible situation. He's going to be fine, and he'll probably be able to play soccer at some point. He'll probably be terrible at it, but he'll be able to play. But the point is, is that I share this story not to pat myself on the back and to say, if you have even a faith, you can accomplish things too. But we were devastated when we got the phone call. It was frustrating. It's, a, it's now one more thing that we've got to deal with. And I say this to say that we must bring in the vocabulary of even if language into our prayers. Not because that diminishes or, or removes our suffering and, sh- and hardship, but because it prepares us and grants us the capacity to handle what comes our way, knowing that our God loves us more than we love ourselves, that my, that my God loves my son more than I do, and that he desires what's best for him even more than I do. That's the even of faith that I think we all need. And like I said, I know that so many of us are facing far greater things than hip dysplasia, Like, oh yeah, sorry, Reed, you have three adorable girls in harnesses that look like they're going parachuting, you know? But I realize we all have terrible things that we're facing. The question is, are we prepared to say even if to them? Even if faith is able to say, regardless of how this interview goes, regardless of what my test score is, regardless of what the doctor tells me, regardless of who's elected, regardless of what happens tomorrow, I trust that my God is still God, is still good, and still in control. It is even if faith that caused these three men to say to the greatest power in the known world, O king, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's even if faith that that compelled and enabled Job to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It's even if faith that allowed the psalmist to declare, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And it is even if faith that compelled Jesus himself to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he goes to the cross for you and for me, and to pray with this honesty, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even if faith is only possible, we, we can't even begin to, to comprehend how to respond to God in that way. It's only possible by Jesus. When we understand that Jesus had this even of faith, that that he himself understood, that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, as 1 Peter says. When we understand that our God is not just more powerful than our fears and not just able to deliver us from the furnace, but the fact that he enters into the furnace with us, that is what enables us to say, even if. Even if things don't go my way, I trust that my God not only can deliver me, but he is with me in the furnace, that he endures my hardship, that he knows my pain better than I do. We don't have a God who is so far off that he cannot sympathize with us, but we have a great high priest, namely Jesus Christ, who has suffered with us, suffered for us, and knows everything we have gone through. Even if faith is only possible because of Jesus, and we are only able to look into the fieriest of furnaces of life and say, even if, because he has entered that furnace with us. And if you're paying attention, you realize we didn't finish the story. If you go back to Daniel, what, what do we see? The three men are sent into the furnace and then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Now he's starting to see. Come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Even if faith enables us to trust that God is God, that God is good, and God is in control, not simply because He can deliver us from the furnace, but because He delivers us through the furnace, and because He goes through the furnace with us. The same God who entered the furnace with Hananiah, with Mishael, Ezra, with these three guys, the same God that entered that furnace is the same God who has entered into our world and journeys with us through our furnaces, through our fires and is able to see us through it. And just as these men exited the furnace without anything touching them, this is the promise given to all who come to trust in Jesus, that just as the fire had nothing on them, so our ultimate enemy, sin, death, and hell itself cannot ultimately touch us. Why? Because we trust the one who not only is able of delivering us from the furnace, but the one who has entered in the furnace with us and says, I am with you and I will see you through the end. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, he is still God, he is still good, and he is still in control. And we know that because our God is a God who has entered the furnace with us and has come out and promised us that the fires will ultimately not touch us. And death is but a shadow and its sting has no power over you. That is the even-if faith picture that the church needs today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you recognizing that, Lord, that there there are a lot of stories in this room of of just people at a a point of despair and we don't know what's next. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know how this relationship will pan out. We don't know if we'll have food on the table. There are so many things, Lord, we are anxious about. And so, Lord, I ask not simply that you would bring restoration, that, that you would provide, but that we would be a people that are able to say to you, Even if you don't, even if you do not answer my prayers in the way that I want, I trust that you are still God, you are still good and still in control. And may we see that, Lord, because you have entered into the furnace with us. May we see Jesus as our great high priest who sympathizes with us, the one who suffered, yes, for us, but also suffers with us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.